Good morning, everyone. Good to see you. When I worked at UMC, uh, there was a book written by Jim Collins that was really significant uh, for the leadership team at the time. The book was entitled Good to Great. You've probably heard of it before. And it tried to identify some of the unique qualities that made companies kind of move from that average to excellent category. Because we all know there's a lot of good companies in the world, right? But there's really only a few great ones. So what does it take to be great? That's what this book intended to answer. And Collins identified several characteristics, but within one of them, he had what was called the Stockdale Principle. It was named after Admiral Jim Stockdale, who was the highest ranking prisoner of war during the height of the Vietnam War. So as you might expect, Stockdale endured some of the toughest torture known to anybody at that time during the eight years of his captivity. And sadly, many of the fellow officers during that same time didn't make it out alive. So one of the obvious questions that Collins asked Stockdale is, what was your secret to survival? How did you last? He responded this way. He said, I never lost faith in the end of the story that I never doubted I would get out, that I would prevail in the end and turn the experience into a defining moment in my life. So in his heart of hearts, he never gave up. But what was interesting, he said, it was the optimists who didn't survive. I thought, well, that's kind of interesting because your statement seems pretty optimistic, right? I knew I would prevail in the end. But he went on to explain, he said, the optimists were those who said, we're going to get out by Christmas, and then Christmas would come and go. And and we're going to get out by Easter, and then Easter would come and go. He said, but over time, these men eventually died of a broken heart because of repeated disappointments. Stockdale said this, here's something you really need to understand. He says, you must never confuse faith that you will prevail in the end, which you cannot afford to lose, with the brutal facts of your current reality, whatever they may be. Now, I tell you that because I want you to keep that perspective in mind as we look at our passage together this morning. As a believer in Jesus Christ, based on everything that we've been singing this morning, you can be confident that you will prevail in the end. Our passage will teach us that you are more than conquerors through him who loved you. But at the same time, we have to face the brutal facts of suffering in a sin-cursed world. Jesus told us, in this world you will have trouble, but fear not, for I have overcome the world. Most of us have already faced plenty of suffering in our lifetime, some very dark and difficult days, but we need to understand that Jesus is not just waiting at it for us somewhere at the end of the story. He's actually with us in the midst of life's struggles. He strengthens us to endure the difficulties with what I'm calling a courageous confidence. We can trust in the power of God's sovereignty. We can rest in the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice. We can be strong in the assurance of our eternal 
security. We can face the brutal facts of suffering in a sin-cursed world, knowing that in the end, we will prevail. And I'm under the impression, personally, that some of our hardest days are still yet ahead of us. But suffering in this world, as Paul has already told us, cannot compare to the glory that has been revealed. And here's the reason that we can have this confidence. Christ has prevailed. And if you belong to him, then so will you. That's where your confidence is. So before we look at our passage, let's go to the Lord this morning. Father, we come to you with great confidence, not because of anything within us, but because of everything that you've accomplished for us. Father, help us to see that more clearly this morning. Help us to understand the depth of your great love, the security of your amazing promises, the beauty of your incredible grace. Lord, just make these truths come alive in our hearts and in our minds in a way that transforms how we live. Father, we would ask that you do this powerfully through the work of your spirit, through the truth of your word, and we pray this in your holy name. Amen. So these are some great, great verses. I hope you took time this week to read them on your own. Um, and I think you'll find if you did, it'll come alive even more. So let's look at them together, beginning in Romans chapter 8, verse 28. Paul's continuing and it says, And we know that God causes all things to work together for good. To those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. In these final verses, Paul is bringing everything that he's really said up through the first eight chapters to a climactic close. When he says that God causes all things to work for good, we need to understand that he means everything. That includes good things and bad things. It includes times of joy. It includes seasons of suffering. There is nothing that you will faith in this life that is outside the power of God to redeem. It's like a flawless recipe where you can add any ingredient you want to, good or bad, and somehow, miraculously, God is able to create something wonderful. We know that G Joseph learned this lesson because of what he told his brothers in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, when he says, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order that it being that excuse me, good, in order to be bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. Now, in all likelihood, G Joseph had to learn this truth over time. It was probably not something that he fully understood when his brothers threw him into a pit and then later sold him into, sold him into slavery, right? He probably had his doubts when he was wrongly accused and then thrown into prison. I'm sure he didn't say in the midst of all that, oh, it's okay, it's all going to work out in the end. And we need to understand that's not what this verse is teaching us. 
what it is teaching us is that we should never lose sight of the power of God's sovereign control. Because no matter how much difficulty Joseph faced in his lifetime, and there was plenty of it, he never abandoned his faith in God. And I believe he knew that no matter how bad things might get, there was nothing that was outside of the power of God's control. Paul says he works all things for good, for those who love him and who are called according to his purposes. When we are called to God's purpose, I believe one of the things that means, one of the main things that means is that we are a part of God's redemptive plan. God loves us enough to include us in his work of redemption going on in the world right now. That's an amazing thought, isn't it? If you think about that work of redemption, at the very center of it, we all know, is the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. Every day his life was filled with kingdom significant purpose. Wouldn't you agree? Every miracle he performed, every lesson that he taught was used to validate that he was the promised Messiah, the Savior of the world. Jesus was ultimately born in order to die for our sins. He lived with that purpose in mind. And we know that on the cross, God took something that others meant for evil and he used it for our ultimate good. That very familiar passage in John 3.16 says that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. That is the purpose for which Jesus lived. The life of Jesus was filled with purpose. And we need to know that when we belong to him, the very same thing is true for us. Did you know that every single day you live is filled with kingdom significant purpose? Every day. Because you reveal Jesus in your marriage. You reveal Jesus in your family. You reveal Jesus in your neighborhood and in your workplace. You are an ambassador for Christ, representing Jesus to the world around you. That's kingdom significant purpose. Jesus was at the heart of God's redemptive plan. We know that's true, but we need to understand that that redemptive plan continues its work through you. As a follower of Jesus Christ, your life is filled with purpose. Paul says, God foreknew you, which tells us that he isn't some distant being unattached from his creation. The Bible actually tells us that he's actively involved in our lives, that he knit us in our mother's womb, that we were created in his image. Way before you knew anything about God, God knew everything about you. And, and not just who you were, but also who you would become. His purpose for your life was to be conformed into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. In other words, he made you to become more and more 
like Christ. Not in an instant, we all know that to be true, but increasingly over time. So that the more you trust in him, the more he transforms your life. You grow in his grace. You're cleansed by his forgiveness. You're changed by his love. These are the undeniable outcomes of a life of faithful obedience. And none of this, now get this, none of this is done by your own initiative. All of it is a response to his calling in your life. He didn't wait for you to prove your love for him. He's invited you to respond to his love for you. Romans 5.8, but God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God moved first. He has always known you. And in that moment, you put your faith and trust in Jesus, you know God. You enter into a relationship that lasts for eternity. You become a part of God's plan of salvation for the world. Your life is filled with purpose. And you live under God's sovereign power to work all things for good. You've been justified. You've been made right in the eyes of God. And you will be glorified where one day you become everything he created you to be. In God's sovereignty, he will bring his work of redemption to completion in you. That's a promise. All things work together for good. For those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. Look at how he continues in verse 31, as if that's not good enough already. Verse 31, what shall we say of these things? If God is for us, then who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather who has been raised, who's at the right hand of God and who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. I think Paul begins this next section with a logical question for what he has previously said. If God is for us, if he works in his sovereignty all things for good, is there anything that can impede God's plan for your life? Is there anything that can impede God's plan for your life? Is there anything that can defy God's good and gracious intentions? Paul answers that question by pointing to Jesus. Because if God did not withhold Jesus from dying on the cross, is there anything that he would not do? After all, if God did elect to spare his son, if he did protect him from dying on the cross, he would have done so knowing that he was bound by his justice to condemn all of humanity for their sins. In other words, 
if Jesus didn't take the wrath for us, then we would have to take that wrath for ourselves. But God's love was so great that he sacrificed his son in order to set us free. So why would God withhold anything if he gave everything for your redemption? God did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. He took our judgment so that we could be declared innocent. We remember what Paul says at the beginning of this chapter. He says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And since that's the case, Paul says, if you belong to Christ, then no one can bring a charge against you. The idea here is to summon someone to, to court with an accusation of guilt. And Paul's essentially saying, it can't happen. And the reason it can't happen is because in the courtroom of heaven, God is the judge. And not only that, get this, Jesus is your attorney. He's the one who is interceding for you on your behalf. And when he does, when he presents your case, we need to understand that he points to himself. Okay? Exhibit A, his substitutionary atonement. Jesus took the punishment that we deserve. Just like you heard read this morning as we've sung about in many of the songs, including those this morning, we know and we remember what Isaiah promised in Isaiah 53 when he said that he, speaking of Jesus, would be pierced for our transgressions, that he would be crushed for our sins, that the punishment that, that we deserve was placed on him and that by his wounds we are healed. Exhibit A, his substitutionary atonement. Exhibit B, his resurrection. Not only did Jesus pay the penalty for our sin, but he broke the power of sin. There's a passage in Ephesians that says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, he made us alive together with Christ, for by grace you have been saved. You see, when we trust in Christ, we are raised to walk in the newness of life, that our old self is crucified and our new self comes alive. That's exhibit B. Exhibit C is ascension. Jesus died, he was buried, and he rose again, and then he ascended to the right hand of the Father. And as a righteous judge, God affirms all these things to be true. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7, we know that we have redemption through Christ's blood, the forgiveness of our sins according to the riches of His grace, which He has lavished upon us. There is no condemnation, no charge that will stand in the courtroom of heaven. Why? Because God has determined that the sacrifice of Jesus Christ is sufficient to forgive all the sins for all who believe for all of eternity. We have a living hope. And there is nothing that can separate us from the love of Jesus Christ. Paul says, not tribulation, not distress, 
not persecution, not famine, not nakedness, not peril, not sword. And as I think about that list, there's two things that come to mind. One of those things is I believe Paul is speaking from his own experience. This is not a random list. These are things that he knew firsthand in his lifetime. And and he knew from his experience that none of those things separated him from the love of Christ and that, in fact, the presence of Christ through the work of his Spirit was with him through it all. The other thing I notice is that these are experiences that many of us will have in our lifetime as well. And when we do, the reality is these are the times when we feel most alone. When we feel as if maybe that God has abandoned us. But as we all know, what we feel is not always true. Because difficulty is not a sign of desertion. Did you hear that? Difficulty is not a sign of desertion. The reality is, we've got to face the brutal facts that we live in a sin-cursed world that is filled with suffering. Everyone who's ever lived experiences some degree of suffering. The difference for the Christian is that you are not alone. You are never abandoned. You are not forgotten, and nothing can separate you from the love of God, which is found in Christ Jesus. You can have confidence in God's sovereignty, knowing that he works all things to accomplish a good purpose. You can have confidence in Christ's sacrifice, knowing that you are protected by his love, and nothing can separate you. You can have confidence in your eternal security And not even death can stand in the way. Look at how Paul speaks to that in verse 39. He says, But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. He says, For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. In all these things, he says, I'm convinced. Well, in all what things? Well, in everything that he's just been talking about, in any hardship, struggle, or suffering that you may ever face in your lifetime, you will not be defeated. Now, we will not be spared from difficulty. But we must know that there is no difficulty that will ultimately defeat us. We will prevail. Standing in the victory of what Jesus accomplished on our behalf. We are more than conquerors. But notice, it's not in our own strength. It says we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. In other words, our victory in this life is because of Jesus' victory over death. In fact, look at the list. Look at it again. Life, death, angels, demons. Look at that list and tell me, was there anything in that list that had the power to overcome Jesus? Is there? There's not. He conquered death. He was victorious over Satan. He had the power over demons. He had power over disease. We know in the Gospels that the disciples say even the winds and the waves obey him. 
And so remember, when you are united with Christ, everything that is true for Him is true for those who belong to Him. We cannot lose because Jesus has already won. We are more than conquerors because of everything that Jesus has accomplished. See, the good news of this passage, and don't miss this, the good news of this passage is not that you are holding on to Jesus. The good news of this passage is that Jesus is holding on to you, and there is absolutely nothing that can separate you from his love. He he tells us in the Gospels, he says, I am the good shepherd. He says, my sheep know me. They hear my voice, and no one will snatch them out of my hands. You are not holding on to Jesus. Jesus is holding on to you. Even in that moment when we take our last breath, we are instantly in his loving presence. Even in the darkest moments in our life, those moments of disease or disappointment, of fear and brokenness, Jesus is always near. It reminds me of a passage, one of my favorite passages in Psalm 139. Listen to how Paul or David describes this reality beginning in verse 7. He says, where can I go from your spirit? In other words, where can I go from your presence, Lord? Or, Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest parts of the sea, even there your hand will lead me and your right hand will lay hold of me. If I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me and the light around me will become night. Even the darkness is not dark to you and the night is as bright as the day. Darkness and light are alike to you. For you form my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance and in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me when as yet there was not one of them. How precious also are your thoughts of me, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I should count them, they would outnumber the sand When I awake, I am still with you. Isn't that incredible? I think the psalmist is essentially saying the very same thing that Paul is trying to help us understand. And I want you to be deeply encouraged by these comforting truths this morning. When you belong to God, you can rest in his sovereign control. Now, it may look like there's a lot of chaos going on in the world around us, and in fact, there is, but we will prevail in the end. Why? Because God has a plan, and He's not making up this plan as He goes. That plan has been set. His knowledge is thorough, and your redemption is secure. Not because of anything that you do for God, but because of everything Jesus has done for you. He loves you unconditionally. He has forgiven you completely. 
And remember, you're not holding on to Jesus. Jesus is holding on to you. We are secure because of his promise, not because of our performance. And so let's face the brutal facts of our suffering. That's the reality that we live in in this world. But know that Jesus is not just waiting for us at the end. He's present with us in life's struggles. So trust in the power of God's sovereignty. Rest in the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice. And be strong in the assurance of your eternal security, knowing that there is nothing that can separate you from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. Amen? That's good news. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for these amazing, miraculous, undeserved, gracious, powerful truths. Father, we pray that even though we may have heard them a hundred times, that somehow this morning they fall fresh on our ears. They stir gratitude in our hearts. They embolden and encourage us to live life with the assurance of your love in a way that gives us boldness in our profession as an ambassador for Christ in our marriages, in our families, in our workplace, in our neighborhood. And Father, if there is are those here this morning who do not know you personally, I pray that they hear these words and listen to your invitation to trust you because of your great love for them. Father, help them to understand that everything that we've talked about this morning and the love that you have through your son, Jesus Christ, was meant for them as well. For God so loved the world that whoever believes in him will not perish, but will have eternal life. Thank you for that promise, and we pray this in your name. Amen. So today, my wife and I celebrate 29 years of marriage. And it is awesome. So I might have had wedding, marriage on the brain when I looked at our passage, but something struck me that I want you to consider when you look at this again this week, and I would encourage you to do so. It reminded me of the wedding vows that we make, which are a covenant promise. It's not a contract. I always tell people that I officiate a wedding for, there are no ifs in your wedding vows, right? It's a covenant promise. And really what the covenant vow is intended to do is remove all conditions, right? For better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health. In other words, I'm taking out all the conditions and I'm committing a covenant love to you, right? When you look at this passage, I believe one of the things you're seeing is God's covenant vow to you. Neither height nor depth, neither death nor life, no angel, no demon, nothing can separate you from my love for you. That's his covenant promise of love for you. And so maybe one of the things that you can do this week, you know, today kind of people like to write their own vows. I'm usually not a big fan of that. (laughs) But in this situation, I'm going to make an exception because I want you to write your vow in response to the commitment that God has made to you. If that's what he says is true of his love for you, what's your response to him? 
what would you do in response to that kind of covenant love commitment to you? So maybe this week, just write it out. Write out your vows in response to God's love for you and live eternally in the assurance of that security.